y'all. My name is Peter. And my name is Carl. And you're listening to Deep and Lift Bro, men exercising social justice. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We deeply appreciate it. Today we're going to be talking about, I don't know. That's right, Peter, you don't know. I'm coming in with a little bit of surprise today. I've been chewing on a lot of stuff and I wanted some of your genuine reactions to this. So I don't know if this is going to be a cheat day or an actual episode. We'll see. With the power of editing, we'll figure it out. Okay. But <laughs> speaking of the cheat days, like I think when it comes to us and behaviors of men, we're trained well in order to pick out the nuances of men's behavior that perpetuate systems of oppression against women. Yeah. Right. Examples of like manspreading or we'll probably do one about spitting in public or just Drawing, mount zone stuff. Drawing dicks and Drawing stuff. dicks, right? Yeah. Taking so, their clothes off. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we have a bunch of these like, if you're a dude, don't do these because it's a dumb thing to do. And anti-social justice. Yeah. So if I were to ask the same question, like what are some very specific behaviors that are rooted in whiteness that disproportionately negatively impact people of color? What would some of your answers be for that? Um, uh, you really put me on the spot. So elements of whiteness. Mm. And I think that's the point. I think that part of what I want to do today, part of what I've been chewing on is why is it easy for us to identify male-based behaviors that are problematic and at least and oppressive at worst, Mm -hmm. but it's so difficult to pin down behaviors and ideas and attitudes around whiteness that do the same thing for people of color. And I think we'd be remiss to not address that. Okay. So I think what I want to do is make sure that in our conversation about whiteness, we still tie it to masculinity and men because I think the theory of white supremacy and whiteness is really interesting to tackle, particularly from a Native American lens. This is going to be, I think, much more of an academic feel to the beginning of it, but hopefully it'll make sense and I'm going to need to bounce this off of you as the resident white dude to, yeah. <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to like figure out if what I'm saying makes sense and if it works. Okay. okay? There's two articles that I'm going to be working off of. One is Andrea Smith. She has an article called Indigeneity, Settler, Colonialism, and White Supremacy. And then this group called the European American Collaborative Challenging Whiteness. And they have a thing called Developing Capacity for Critical Self-Reflection When Race is Salient. So I'm going to combine these two articles to really talk about what the theory of whiteness and white supremacy is, and then talk about the ways in which white folks and I think men of color perpetuate whiteness in ways that are masculine. Okay. Okay. So Andrea Smith talks about white supremacy, which is different from white supremacist. Yeah. Well, actually, I don't know if Andrea Smith does that as much as the European American. Anyway, the point is the way Andrea Smith articulates white supremacy is that we are taught patterns of logic that are inherently oppressive. And by we, I do mean everybody. Right. So I identify as Japanese and white. And I grew up in a mostly middle class to upper class white neighborhood. And so I am absolutely going to internalize and embody a lot of white supremacist consciousness and understandings around whiteness and play that out despite identifying as a man of color and not categorizing my experience growing up as white. Okay, that makes sense so far. Yeah. I think so. (laughs) It's a lot of big words, but I think I'll wrap my head around it. Much like masculinity and patriarchy can cause or have women behave in ways that support it, white supremacy can absolutely cause people of color to behave in ways that support white supremacy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's much more of a concept than it is embodied in an individual. Okay. So the way Andrea Smith describes it is there's three logics of white supremacy. These are three ways that we think seem like logic 
that seem like the norm okay. that are pillars of white supremacy. Okay. Yeah, and these are the, the white identity is seen as the normal identity in right. a lot of uh, circles. Yeah. And it goes beyond identity. It goes to attitudes about people of color. It goes to systems in which people of color are still oppressed or made invisible. And the reason why it's really important to go through a Native American lens is because when we think about ethnic studies and the way people of color tend to organize around anti-racist stuff is we treat the Native American experience as if it's just racial discrimination. Okay. Which I think is wrong. And according to Andrea Smith is wrong because the Native American racial experience is the continual ongoing colonization of their people. Okay. Yeah. Right. So that's a very different thing than being discriminated against for being a person of color. Okay. Yeah. It's a little bit more layered at that point. Yes. And so that's why I think this perspective is really interesting where there are, again, I'm saying three logics of white supremacy for the fourth time, maybe, and getting sidetracked. But here they are. Slaveability slash anti-black racism anchors capitalism. Okay. Okay. Genocide of Native peoples anchors colonialism. Okay. And Orientalism anchors war. Okay. And I'll talk about what Orientalism means in a second, but I'm going to go through and kind of explain what each pillar means and then talk about how that's connected to people of color in particular. But I do think if you approach this from a white lens, you find ways that you can critically examine your own whiteness. Okay. So the first pillar is that slaveability slash anti-black racism anchors capitalism, right? So capitalism is a system in which an economic system, which people make money. And the best way to make money is to minimize the cost of labor. Yeah. That's where slavery comes in, right? If your labor is free, then all of that goes into capital and, and you gain money. Yeah. The way white supremacy work is that blackness becomes equated with the ability to be enslaved. Okay. And we still have that mentality in various ways, right? It went from actual slavery to now what is the prison industrial complex. Yeah. yeah. And you see a lot of articles about how firefighters in California currently are inmates who are being paid like a dollar an hour to fight those fires. It is just a different type of slavery that we got going on, especially when you combine it with the increased and absolutely higher rates of incarceration of black and brown folks over white folks. You begin to see this pattern of how black bodies in particular are are inherently slavable. Yeah. And of course, because like only recently has Colorado taken slavery out of the Colorado Constitution. And that doesn't mean that slavery is now like not a big deal anymore, but it's just kind of a wake up call to see that slavery is still a thing. And I think what you said about the prison industrial complex is completely true. For sure. Thank you. And here's the thing. So what this does is if you equate blackness in particular with slavability, it creates a hierarchy of race. Okay. So as long as you are not black, you have the opportunity to escape the commodification of capitalism, right? Like if I don't view myself as black, that means I don't view myself as slavable. That means I view black people as slavable, which means I can buy into this idea of capitalism and get money because I know that I won't be viewed as a slave. Okay. So... Basically, if you identify as a black person, then you see yourself as slavable or potentially. Okay. That is deeply internalized that we won't be touching. Okay. This is the concept. This is the logic of slavability as it anchors capitalism. So since I don't identify as a black man, there's some internalized stuff that I might harbor that view black people as slavable due to the history of capitalism and stuff. Therefore, being able to escape the commodification of your body and therefore able to fully participate in the system that is capitalism. Okay. 
I okay. think I get it. That's one out yeah. of three. Here we go. <laughs> okay. The second pillar of white supremacy is the logic of genocide. This holds that indigenous peoples must disappear. And the reason why that is important is because if indigenous people disappear, then non-indigenous people can claim the land. Yeah. Okay. That's uh, like some brooded like that goes way back. Right. So if we as men, as non-native men, believe in social justice, then we have to be willing to give up the property that, I mean, I don't own property right now, but we'd have to be willing to give up the ancestral lands of the peoples who have lived here forever yeah. right, and are currently being removed. Okay. So this anchor of colonialism, which is genocide, means that, to quote Andrea Smith here, non-native peoples then become the rightful inheritors of all that was indigenous, land, resources, indigenous spirituality, and culture. Okay. And that's a pillar of white supremacy. We have to believe that indigenous people don't exist. That way we feel comfortable living here and appropriating native culture and resources. Like we cut down the trees, we suck up the water, we pollute the land. Yeah. All of that stuff makes sense if you buy into the genocide pillar of white supremacy. Yeah. And I think the lack of conversation about native peoples within like the mainstream media. And when we talk about social justice and oppression, native peoples are often left out of the conversation. And agreed. correct me if I'm wrong, but that might be like... Um, contributing to this pillar of white supremacy because if you don't talk about it then you don't have awareness and then you cannot solve any issues because in today's culture native peoples are just like erased in a sense so that they seem invisible and they seem that they don't exist exactly our social justice is meaningless if we don't think about giving back the land to native folks yeah the third pillar of white supremacy is the logic of orientalism okay so orion <clears throat> keep saying oreo orientalism is a term by the uh that was invented well not invented but given meaning to by this guy named edward said it is the process of the this is andrea smith again it is the process of the west defining itself as a superior civilization by constructing itself in opposition to an exotic but inferior orient Okay. Originally, it was the Asian continent, particularly East Asia in terms of Orientalism, right? That's the first thing that we go to. Yeah. Now it can absolutely include the Middle East, Africa, and South America, right? Okay. As the yeah. Orient. It is not the West. And so this anchors war in the sense that it marks certain people or nations as inferior and deems them to be a constant threat to the well-being of the empire, right? Yeah. These people are a threat to the United States. They're a threat to our people. They're terrorists. Mm-hmm. And what that does is, you know, you can see this logic a lot in the anti-immigration movements of the United States. In fact, you know, they're gassing, tear gassing babies and women on the border right now as we speak. Like mm -hmm. we're talking about the logic of oriental orientalism coming into play right before our very eyes. And it serves to anchor war. The United States is not is never at war. OK, United States is war. Like we need war to justify a lot of the policies that anchors white supremacy in this country. Yeah. I forgot who wrote the uh, notes from the underground, but it was basically, gosh, I wish I could remember his name, but he was pretty much outcasted by his society. And he wrote in his book that you need a scapegoat for society to exist. Mm, okay. And that everyone surrounds themselves around the scapegoat. And so that society can like flourish and stuff. So if, 
there was no scapegoat or there was no other or enemy or someone different that you don't agree with and needs to be erased, then war and society as we know it would not exist. Gotcha. Yes. So that is a well-documented pattern in U.S. society so far. Yeah. And so those are the three like logics, according to Andrea Smith, that anchors white supremacy in our minds. Okay. So, and that's the thing. It is something that we are taught it is so deeply ingrained, this idea of whiteness, that it is absolutely an unconscious process in which we continue to uphold it. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it's so critical for us as a podcast to really, really examine how white supremacy, not white supremacists necessarily, but how white supremacy has impacted the way we've talked about masculinity so far. Yeah. Kind of talking about like how people like to talk more about um, white supremacists versus white supremacy, I think kind of goes back to my point about scapegoating. So in order for this white supremacy to exist, we have to realize or like internalize that it does not exist. And so when we see people like, you know, the far alt right and like what happens in Charlottesville and like other groups like that, you see, oh, that's the extreme. That's the only white supremacy that exists. Right. So when we don't talk about the more, as you say, kind of pillars or internalized stuff that continue to plague our society today, then that's how white supremacy is still pervading into our society. Right. Well said. What's important here, I think, as it relates to masculinity is I'm I think I'm speaking specifically as myself, as a man of color and to men of color who may or may not be listening is that our manifestation of misogyny is absolutely directly linked to these pillars of white supremacy. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because these are designed to divide people as a way to more easily control them and uplift people who are white and or men. Right. And so Andrea Smith here says it really well. So I'm just going to read from here, but it says, or she says, what keeps us trapped within our particular pillars of white supremacy is that we are seduced by the prospect of being able to participate in the other pillars. For example, All non-native peoples are promised the ability to join in the colonial project of settling indigenous lands, right? All non-black people are promised that if they conform, they will not be at the bottom of the racial hierarchy. And black and native peoples are promised that they will advance economically and politically if they join U.S. wars to spread, quote unquote, democracy. Okay. Right. So this this idea of white supremacy is set up to seduce people of color into one area of white supremacy while fighting a different pillar, therefore leaving another pillar to uphold white supremacy, two pillars, in fact, to uphold white supremacy. And so as men of color, we really have to take into account what are the things that we have learned outside of our marginalized identity. And this actually probably goes to gay and trans men as well, but like we have to go beyond the construct in which we are put in according to Andrea Smith's logics of white supremacy in order to effectively do work. And so I don't know, I when I read this, I just it hit me pretty deep in terms of being able to articulate what are some of the things that white people and myself, like I am implicated in this, struggle with around behaviors of whiteness that then oppress or marginalize the people of color around us. A conversation that I had either last semester or the previous one with someone who identifies as a white man, he talked about how like it was white people who let the slaves go free. Okay. There wasn't a concept of slaves and black people and indigenous people fighting tooth and nail with their lives and putting everything on the line to become free. It was this really, really deep, deeply rooted sense of benev- like white benevolence. Like, like we- a white savior complex kind of. It was more than savior complex. It was like, you owe me complex. Oh, okay. A very deeply implicit, 
since we let you free, you owe us everything. Hmm. And that particular attitude, I think, is fairly common amongst white people, but it takes a different form. It might not be explicit. Like, I don't ever think you would think that it was your people who are the, like the smartest people ever, like Einstein or whatever, right? Um, who invented all over the place, who freed the slaves, basically. Like, that kind of deeply... I'm. I'm sure someone's called it white benevolence before, but that kind of benevolence, I think, leads to a lot of behaviors that we would call entitlement today, yeah. but are deeply rooted in white supremacy. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of whack, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not saying all white people think this way or that all people of color think this way, because white they, they uh, Andrew Smith talks about how it impacts different people differently. Yeah. So, you know, this dude may or may not have had I mean, probably didn't have the right or the education to even understand what he was saying. Mm -hmm. But if with the absence of education, that's the kind of attitude that comes up because of the white supremacist society that we are grounded in. Yeah. And I think like even in public schools, certain presidents and certain people are held to such a high standard. And I think it goes into that white benevolence. Like Abraham Lincoln is considered like one of the best presidents of all time. And people think he's just like, you know, a god among men because he abolished slavery. However, he had his own reasons to abolish slavery that were not completely, um, you know, virtuous. He just wanted a war to end. He made many states like able to, I think it was Alabama. I forgot, but he wanted the Alabama to join the North or some other history buffs are going to chew my Virginia. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Virgi- I don't know. Or South. It was, it's, it's like right on the border because he yeah. technically abolished slavery in the South, which is meaningless because they ceded from the, the union anyway. Yeah. Okay. So the proclamation are, what is that thing called? Emancipation proclamation. The emancipation. Yes. The emancipation proclamation was literally just a piece of paper, but we attach it to Lincoln's legacy. Okay. So I, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right in that. And like, I don't know, it's interesting to think of how that sense of entitlement, because previously I thought that sense of entitlement like came from just growing up in a good neighborhood and not knowing any form of, you know, oppressed identity. But now that you're saying this, it's kind of making me realize that this entitlement goes way deeper than that. And it goes into like the public education system, like idolizing certain figures that are white and have this complex of like, well, we did this right. So we that's why we deserve everything. I think it's a complete just like just trying to justify atrocities at that point where it's like, oh, this was like up, but like we made it right again. So when in reality, it was the dominant group that you're praising that put these marginalized people in these horrible atrocities in the first place. Exactly. Right. Like I call it an ahistorical analysis of our current situation. It's like saying none of the history of the United States matters in mm-hmm. today's context. And I think white people love doing that. Like oh, I yeah. think a lot, and it's really, it's fascinating. I really wish I brought this up, but one of the things that irritates white people the most is being called white people. Like, I think there's, there's an implication there of whiteness that comes directly face to face for white people. When we say white people as a group, because of this idea of rugged individualism or like ex- almost it is extreme individualism that comes with whiteness. Mm-hmm. And so that's another sort of behavioral attitude of whiteness that I think is important to focus on is social justice isn't about rugged individualism at 
all. It is the opposite. It is about community. It is about listening to people. Is it? It is about befriending and understanding folks and their plight and their struggle and their history in this country in order to feel good or know and understand that we're on the right path forward to justice. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have this idea of social justice being anti-white and and being like, I'm going to I'm going to cringe when I say this word, but reverse racism. <laughs> right. And it's kind of like misandry and stuff like that. I think those arguments are invalid because those groups have the most power within society. So with this idea of them like, oh, you're being reverse racist. I'm like, well, you've never dealt with any type of oppression concerning race before. So this idea of me calling out or us calling out the white dominant group as like just a theory and how it is rooted in white supremacy. We're not talking about like white people are bad or whiteness is bad. We're talking about white supremacy that is deeply rooted in whiteness is bad. And it, we need to understand this a little bit more in order to form a, you know, a working theory of what the world should look like. Exactly. And I think being able to use the phrase reverse racism acknowledges the fact that racism happened in the first place. So, I mean, I'm like back and forth on that, right? Like, good. Yeah. You, like, let's talk about that first. That second word, not that that first word. Yeah. That leads me into this other piece here. Developing capacity for critical self-reflection when race is salient by the European American Collaborative Challenging Whiteness. This group describes something called white supremacist consciousness. Okay. Which I think all of us are subject to. As a result of white supremacist consciousness, and here's a quote, find it difficult to perceive how white privilege affects our lives and the lives of others. Okay. okay. And this, I think it's true of any type of privilege. It's really difficult to see your own privilege because you've never had to really think about it or weren't directly confronted about it until much later. The name of it being really difficult to identify where white privilege manifests and how it harms people of color is really difficult to do because of this concept called white supremacist consciousness. If you participate in white supremacist consciousness or... Um, we all have it. Yeah. And if you participate in like fail to recognize the privilege, then you just keep benefiting and if you participate, you will in a f***ed up way succeed in this like, you know, corrupt and oppressive society. So for a lot of people, there's not much incentive to recognize their privilege because once they do, they'll realize that they've been contributing to a system of oppression. And without that knowledge, you could easily just not think about it and keep going on in your life. For sure. And I think untreated white supremacist consciousness in men of color results in misogynistic and homophobic behaviors and attitudes. Okay. This is where I think the crossroads of masculinity and whiteness happens for me, at least, differently maybe from you. Well, it is different from you. Yeah. The solution from the European American Collaborative Challenging Whiteness is something called race cognizance. And DL in the Trans Masculinities podcast early on told me like, you know, your podcast could be more trans cognizance. So I was like, oh, so that should translate, right? Race cognizant is recognizing race as salient. And I mean, obviously, but like, yeah, it's hard to do. I think it's really hard to do. And their solution to it is called critical humility. Critical humility is the practice of remaining open to discovering that our knowledge is partial and evolving while at the same time being committed and confident about our knowledge and action in the world. Okay. Could you read that again? 
Critical humility is the practice of remaining open to discovering that our knowledge is partial and evolving while at the same time being committed and confident about our knowledge and action in the world. Yeah. In my women in gender studies class, we're working on this project where it addresses the problematic notion of wokeness and how some people are woke and some people are not. And what we and I've read like just so many scholarly articles about this because I want to get an A in that class. But um, (laughs) it's this idea that your knowledge is completely whole and there's nothing for you to learn. And so since you are an expert in all things social justice, that means you are woke and that you can progress into the future with your social justice work. And what I think this statement is reading as is that nobody knows everything. And of course, you have to take into your privileges and salient identities when you're working with this work. But I like I really like that idea of our knowledge is partial and being open to new knowledge and new discussion, because there's always going to be something new that we don't understand. I mean, on this podcast, we try to incorporate as much inclusivity as we can, but honestly, it's almost impossible because there's always something new propping up and there's something that I, there are a lot of things that I don't know. I don't know about But um, it's just like, I really like that idea of partial knowledge, but also having the confidence in the knowledge that you have in order to go throughout your life with social justice work. Because if you're just learning everything and like have this inferiority complex of like, oh, I don't know everything, so I can't do this work, then no, nothing will get done. For sure. I think the most important question here that they ask is, how am I similar to that which I am criticizing? Okay. So I'm sitting here talking about white supremacy and criticizing the behaviors of white people, some white people, most white people, yeah, (laughs) in the ways that racism and systems of oppression against people of color are perpetuated. But I need to be able to do the analysis of how I am similar to that which I am criticizing. How am I similar to white supremacist consciousness and white supremacy, even though I identify as a person of color? I think that's really important because I can absolutely uphold those systems even as I actively try to fight against it. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I want us to carry forward in this podcast is this question because we are absolutely criticizing the ever-living out of masculinity. Yeah. And I'm not sure if we spend enough time talking about how similar we are in which to the criticizing that we do. Yeah. Okay? And I think that's going to be hard. And, you know, I want to be able to provide concrete examples for us to talk about to others and be able to like recognize that that's something that we have absolutely done in the past mm-hmm. and hoping that in imparting this experience, someone else will reduce the amount of potential harm that they can cause just from hearing our experiences around it. Yeah. And I think also with the idea of recognizing how you participate into these systems and how you're similar to the people that we or to the groups and ideas that we oppose. I mean, I'm a white dude and I'm like, you know, as privileged as can be. So but in my mind, recognizing that privilege is also it's a sign of self-reflection and it's good to analyze yourself in order to perform um, effective social justice work, but also recognizing that privilege helps you to realize how you can use that privilege to subvert systems of oppression and how you can use all the salient identities that you have in order to make change within the world. For sure. And the difficult task here in terms of whiteness is this group calls it a profound unconsciousness. Okay. A profound unconsciousness. That means to me that whiteness or white supremacist consciousness is so, so deeply rooted in our minds that it is incredibly difficult to really bring it to consciousness. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting here thinking like, 
what are behaviors or things to look out for that we can provide, not just to white folks in general, but to men of color potentially too? What are some thoughts, behaviors, and attitudes that we need to start critically looking at? Because I do think just saying be more aware of your privilege isn't good enough. For example, if you read Peggy McIntosh's Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack of White Privilege, she'll give you a list of things that white people have privileges in. One of them, for example, is like, you'll never have to speak on behalf of your race. Mm -hmm. Like, cool. What does that mean for you right now? Yeah. I don't totally know. So what are some things that we can say right now that we understand as whiteness and how those behaviors negatively impact people of color in our lives. Yeah, that reminds me of something my friend said. He was like, you're either racist or you're not racist. There's no in between. And either I know that I'm racist and I'm actively trying to be a white supremacist or like I'm in the clear. And I think with this discussion... That's kind of a cop out. That's yeah. yeah. Like you have to understand. I think a lot of people get turned off with the term internalized oppression or internalized homophobia or white supremacy, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Because I think they give too much credit to how much they know about marginalized people and their struggles. And they also give too much credit to how they do not participate in these systems of oppression. And so I think just that idea of trying to understand that there are internalized pieces within us and within me and especially because of my salient identities that constantly contribute to these systems of oppression and just knowing that like kind of like what was it like critical humility? Yes. Yeah. Having that idea of that critical humility exists and that you should be like, okay, just because I say I'm not racist and I would like not do these things that may be perceived as racist. I still harbor racist epithets within me because that's what's taught. That was taught to me from like day one. I do think you're onto something in terms of one of the most common, well, see, this is where it gets interesting because when I think about whiteness, I'm thinking about both white men and white women, but the way whiteness manifests for those groups are different. Like there should be some commonalities there because I was just about to say like the arrogance of thinking you know it all is absolutely a white supremacist consciousness. Yeah. But I also feel like there's a higher prevalence of that in white men than there are white women. And so the idea of the systems of patriarchy and white supremacy coming together to like make it doubly so for white men to have like twice the arrogance basically yeah is something to think about i said this the other day well yesterday actually men in the movement i said like we need to be as men need to be careful like the way we talk the way we present ourselves could be perceived as arrogant or overconfident even if we don't feel that way or act that way okay mm -hmm. so saying words like actually or saying words like obviously before starting a sentence can easily give off a sense of arrogance that you may or may not have i mean i think we would call it mansplaining but being careful around pretending basically like we as white men need to be more accurate in the knowledge that we actually have and more accurate in the knowledge that we don't have exactly and being like well this is my take on this and having that idea of our knowledge is partial, of course. So I think definitely because I've heard a lot of my friends being like, well, obviously, like blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, is it? Is it? Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know if it's obvious to a lot of people. And also it kind of excludes a lot of people who want to get into the social justice work right. or, you know, because like this podcast and like the work that we're trying to do, we're not trying to like demonize anybody. We're not trying to outcast anyone. It's more of this idea of like we are trying to give arguments 
and reasons in order to be a part of this work. I mean, we're kind of like pitching this idea. And so if somebody wants to be a part of it, you can't use the words obviously and actually because Mm -hmm. then it creates a power struggle between you who has more knowledge and you basically put yourself as an authority figure over something that you may know nothing about. Exactly. And I do think it has roots in this idea of benevolence, right? Like, let me teach you poor, uneducated piece of Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A thing or two based on my incredibly limited and misunderstanding of the subject. And so thinking about the ways white benevolence in particular manifests in behaviors like mansplaining, I think starts to get us to the root of white supremacist consciousness in really critical ways. I think another behavior of whiteness is this idea of perfection. Okay, Mm -hmm. Like everything needs to be perfect or it's not worth doing. I do think that is a white supremacist consciousness because it's an inhuman goal. Mm -hmm. It is almost literally impossible to do anything perfectly. And to judge others for not being perfect is an act of, of whiteness. And that automatically excludes people of color because they're not white. They're not perfect. I think that trickles down into this idea of professionalism. Like, I think there's a perfect way to be professional. And, you know, I think a lot of white people say professionalism, but what they mean is acceptable to whiteness. Yeah. And that comes up a lot for hairstyles of black folks and other ways of like acting, behaving, speaking, dressing. Yeah. So I do think this idea of perfectionism is directly linked to oppressive ways in which we think and talk about people of color. I also think another word to say perfectionism or kind of corollary to the subject is efficiency. Okay. Going back to Andrea Smith's point about black people being the root of capitalism. I mean, when you talked about uh, well, capital- the, the labor of black folks allowing capitalism that happened so well in the United States, I think. Okay. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So the labor of black people, i.e. slavery. Yes. Is the bedrock of capitalism in the United States. Yeah. So what you were talking about is like, you know, if labor's free, then profits, you know, skyrocket. And that's the this idea of efficiency and capitalism. You know, a lot of people will knock on social justice work for not being efficient or not being this idea of it's not, you know, fiscally responsible or, you know, I hear a lot of people who say that the left or, you know, the social justice warriors, ugh, um, <laughs> they have no fiscal responsibility and they they don't know mm, okay. how to improve the nation um, financially. And I think it that totally plays into this idea of efficiency that white people are so obsessed with. I'm I mean, personally, I'm obsessed with efficiency. <laughs> you know, okay. I want to get things done as fast as possible with the least amount of work. And that might be my slacker self you know, coming up. <laughs> but honestly, I've had the opportunity to be a slacker and like be a procrastinator and still get good grades. Just I think because of my race and what I have been given mm, okay. from the start, because, you know, I was born in a very privileged family. I, you know, never really had to worry about, you know, if dinner was going to be served the next day or something like that. And my upbringing taught me to be as efficient and as, you know, as you said, perfect as possible, which I think totally plays into white supremacy because the most efficient race or the most efficient world in their mind is the complete elimination of people of color. Yep. And the Western ideas of what it means for civilized people. That reminds me too, like in this idea of efficiency, time is commodified, Yeah. right? The commodification of time is also a very much a white concept. So like I give you my time, I'm taking time, 
you know, the way we talk about time is also a transactional process. And so the way I think that relates is I think people of color are much more negatively impacted by being late, for example, um, than white people are because of this idea that that person of color is now taking away from the time, the the more valuable time that is white people's time. And so thinking about lateness and the the racialized construct of, of being on time I think is another way to work on our own white supremacist consciousness. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'm actively subverting that, but. (laughs) Well, you're not going to face the consequences of being late all the time. That is true. I mean, uh, and that's kind of the like that kind of goes back to this idea of me being able to be a slacker and a procrastinator and still be successful because, you know, I I remember when I worked at um, a burger joint and I was like 10 to 15 minutes late every single day. But I was, you know, considered one of the best employees there just because, you know, I did the work and I had been working there for a, like a couple of years. So I was pretty experienced. So people were like, oh, I don't give a f-. like he's late, like whatever. Okay. And, you know, my entire life, I've always been late to things. And it's and it's like been this <laughs> complex of mine of where I'm like, it's just no big deal. And I think. You know, I have the privilege and entitlement to think that way because I have never faced consequences or at least I've never like been fired from a job, been outcasted, expelled, suspended, anything like that for being late. And I couldn't even imagine like not having that privilege. <laughs> yeah. Because it's so integral to me okay. of being late, and I don't, like I don't know what <laughs> it's not like a choice, yeah. but it is a type of my personality. And if you get to know me or get to work with me, you will understand that that is something that I still need to work on. And I don't know. It's interesting to think about professionalism and this idea of time because time is so integral to this idea of capitalism and being successful within the world because, you know, hourly wages, you know, I get paid so much amount of money per hour. And I've heard a lot of people say, oh, you're wasting my time. It's something that you never get back. And I think it also goes into that idea that the man you were talking to where he said, oh, white people freed the slaves. So like they owe us something Mm -hmm. definitely goes into like, oh, I gave you this job. So you owe me your time. And if you don't do it right, especially if you're a person of color, like relating to black people's labor is the bedrock of capitalism. If you are late, then you're not a good labor force. Yep. And it also ties into efficiency. For sure. Okay. (laughs) I felt like that was going to be an intense one, but in reflection, what's going on for you? Um, I, I think it's really hard. Like when you, when you asked me the question, it was like, how do you participate in systems of white supremacy? I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> you didn't screw up. I mean, <laughs> except every minute of your life, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> under the constructs of white supremacy. <laughs> yeah. I, Peter, so I need you, Peter, to be able to rattle off problematic white behaviors just as much as you're able to rattle off problematic masculine behaviors. Of I think course. that is going to be an ask moving forward. Yeah. And then we collectively need to be better at being transcognizant. Mm-hmm. We need to be better at understanding heterosexual privilege in at least hetero-presenting relationships, regardless of how we identify sexually. We need to be more class cognizant, right? Like this medium of podcast is a class privilege to be yeah. able to do this. Being at an institution of higher education is a privilege that we don't often talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the way we started this podcast, I didn't mean to trick you into it, but I do think it's a great illustration of like when we're put on the spot, we need to have that on the tip of our tongues. If we're going to be participants in a social justice movement, carrying the dominant identities that we have. Yeah. And I think it was 
so hard for me to like come up with something on the spot because I think the privileges that I hold and stuff like that give me an ability to talk about other oppression and just the oppression of others while I'm here, you know, actively participating in white supremacy like every day and being ignorant to things that I don't know. And while I am always willing to learn new things, I feel like a lot of stuff kind of goes over my head because, you know, in my public education experience and career, we have never talked about white supremacy. Mm. And the only way we have ever talked to white supremacy is the extremist group. And it's always just been like, don't be racist. Okay. And it's never been like, you know, the stuff that you you told me right now was completely new to me. <laughs> okay. I mean, not completely, but. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. So I want to shift that a little bit, right? Like I want you to think of your publication, uh, your public education as actively teaching you white supremacy. Okay. Yeah. So what are some of the things in your elementary, middle and high school experience that is actively teaching you the logics of white supremacy, according to Andrea Smith? Okay. Yeah. So yes, it's not like this extremist thing, but it is absolutely, but like public education is that, well, for most folks, public education is absolutely a teaching of white supremacist logic. Yeah, I think some. Are, do you like want me to answer that no, question? Good. I just I just want to make sure that we frame it in a way that it's not that your schools or our schools or our everyday experiences isn't teaching us white supremacy or teaching us about white supremacy, I should say, and only talking about the extremist Nazis and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But to think of our everyday existence, every ad that we look at, every media thing that we consume is an active process of continuing to socialize us as white people and socialize us as men. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just to reframe other sort of thoughts that are coming up for you. Um, I knew some things going into this, how white, uh, how my whiteness actively participates in these, um, structures of, uh, white supremacy. Obviously I did not have the vocabulary for it or like the right types of like pillars or something metaphor or whatever. But I think it was interesting to kind of put a label on certain things. Cause I feel like once we put a label on something and we know how it affects us and what we do in everyday life, it's a lot easier to understand and combat instead of just remaining arrogant and ignorant to these things. And, you know, I've deeply strived to have the consciousness of, I don't know everything and this idea of you know perfectionism and like me being this all-knowing thing i guess <laughs> god yeah like basically yeah. i mean that is a white supremacist complex is kind of a god complex yeah it is and so i think um I don't know. It was really interesting to read these articles and stuff like that. And now going back to it, there are definitely things that I still have to work on and will remain to be working on to disrupt white supremacist culture. And I don't know. It's interesting. I wouldn't even say it's culture because I don't know. In my opinion, white people don't have culture, but right. um, I don't know. It's really interesting to hear all these um, people's perspectives and how they have had to put it in the light and they have had to put a name to it because, you know, previously I was just like, yeah, I don't I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I will continue to work on my own white supremacist consciousness because I need to be able to recognize behaviors in like men in the movement and Red Wilson Brigade that are related to whiteness in order to prepare you all better for advocating for for anti-gender based violence stuff, right? So mm -hmm. one of the things that I wanted to add to the end here 
Andrea Smith is actually a pretty controversial figure in academia. She's claimed Cherokee heritage, but there's no evidence that she has Cherokee heritage. Okay. Right. And so there's a lot of people that really admire. This harkens back to our music podcast around can we separate the artist from the art? This is different, I think, because it's academics, because Mm -hmm. the things that because white people can contribute to like ethnic studies work around whiteness. But the problematic thing here is that she has actively taken away resources from if it's true that she doesn't identify as Cherokee at all. She has been paid for speaking engagements to speak as a Cherokee person, a member of the Cherokee nation. Mm. She has used that particular identity to get tenure in certain places that could have taken that probably took away from people who do identify as Native American. Yeah. And so Andrea Smith herself is a pretty controversial figure in academia and this particular writing still had an impact on us, right? So this one for me is difficult in the terms of, I think the justice here is that we mentioned that there is absolutely value in the words of this person, regardless of how they identify, because it is identifying logics of white supremacy that many people of color agree with, no matter who it came from. And we wouldn't be doing native communities justice if we didn't also mention that the author of this article is like embroiled in a controversy of claiming to be someone that she isn't. That will do it for this episode of Do You Even Lift Bro? Men Exercising Social Justice. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for a podcast, please email WGAC at colostate.edu. That's WGAC at C-O-L-O-S-T-A-T-E dot E-D-U. Huge shout out to the partnership between the Women and Gender Advocacy Center and KCSU here at Colorado State University. These are the folks that even allow us to do this podcast. For more content about masculinities, check out meninthemovement.blogspot.com. And for more information about the WGAC, go to WGAC. Gac.colostate.edu. For more 90.5 KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Music production by Xavier Hadley, aka Zavley. Check him out at soundcloud.com slash Xavier Hadley. That's X-A-V-I-E-R-H-A-D-L-E-Y. Thanks for listening, everyone. Deuces. Woo! Orientalism. Orientalism. I'm going to start over. (laughs) Orientalism.